You're listening to the Paleo NP podcast, episode number 15. Welcome to the Paleo NP podcast. I'm Martha, a family nurse practitioner and creator of MarthaFlorence.com. I live in Anchorage, Alaska with my boyfriend and fur children. I'm here to share my take on integrative health, nutrition, and fitness, answer your questions, and talk with health and wellness experts. You can submit your questions at MarthaFlorence.com. Enjoy this week's episode. Remember that the materials and content within this podcast are intended as general information only and are not to be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey guys, did you miss me last week? I really wanted to record an episode while I was in Hawaii, but it just didn't happen. I went to the Big Island first for a medical conference and then for the annual Alaskan triathlete pilgrimage for the Lava Man Triathlon. Every year, about 250 people show up from Alaska for a rate for that race, and it's a ton of fun. I actually ended up not racing this year because of some bike issues, but I still swam every morning and did some pretty epic bike rides. That was before I had bike issues, which was a ton of fun. I think that I rode my bike just over 100 miles in four days, which is completely insane considering I haven't been on my bike hardly at all since June of 2017. And then on race day, I did have a blast cheering for all of my friends, which isn't something I typically get to do since I'm usually participating. So I had a great time even though I didn't race. Just one quick announcement. Next week, I have a really awesome guest on the show and I'm really excited to share that episode with you. So look for that next week. But this week, I wanted to talk about something that's been on my mind for a while And that's food sensitivity testing, because I think there is some confusion and misinformation out there about how you go about determining if you have food sensitivities and what you should be doing about them. So if you have any sort of chronic health issue, whether or not you actually have gastrointestinal symptoms, such as bloating or gas or whatever, then you probably have food intolerances. And I just want to clarify that food intolerances or sensitivities are very different from food allergies. If you have a food allergy, you should never eat that food, ever, especially if you have any sort of anaphylactic reaction to that food. But food sensitivities are different. That just means that your body has a reaction to the food, which results in a variety of symptoms. So you can react to a substance in food called histamine. You can lack the enzymes needed to break down the food, which is what happens with lactose intolerance. You can have celiac disease. You can be sensitive to food additives or even just have leaky gut, which we've talked about a few times before. All food sensitivities, intolerances, and allergies are caused by something that's called a hypersensitivity reaction. And what happens is that your body recognizes any of the substances that can cause these sensitivities, called antigens, as something that has harmed your body before or as something that has been in your bloodstream and doesn't belong there, like in the case of leaky gut. And then your body sets off an immune response. Now, the type of reaction you have, so an allergy, an intolerance, or a sensitivity, depends on the type of cells involved and how long it takes for a reaction to occur. So a food allergy is called a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, and it occurs when your immune system identifies a component of the food as dangerous 
and creates IgE antibodies against it. These antibodies cause large amounts of histamine to be released into your tissues, and the symptoms of these reactions are generally pretty quick, so they occur within less than one hour of exposure, and they're very obvious and range from mild, such as sneezing, an itchy throat, or a rash, to more serious like facial swelling or airway constriction. And in very serious cases, this would be when an anaphylactic reaction would occur. So when you think of food allergies, think of the type of reaction that you might need to carry an EpiPen for. A food sensitivity is caused by a type 2, 3, or 4 hypersensitivity reaction. And these are different from a type 1 allergy because the mediators, like histamine, are released into the blood instead of into the tissues. And this distinction is important because it means that the reaction has less obvious symptoms and is delayed. So it can be up to eight hours before symptoms occur. These involve IgG and IgM antibodies, so that's instead of the IgE like food allergies. Consistent release of these chemical mediators can cause chronic inflammation, pain, digestive upset, skin conditions, and can eventually lead to an illness. Type 2 reactions usually occur with a blood transfusion reaction, which isn't something that most people deal with. So food sensitivities typically involve type 3 or 4, and a type 3 reaction is what occurs in an autoimmune response, and type 4 is what's called a delayed hypersensitivity reaction that can take anywhere from 24 to 72 hours to show up. Food sensitivity reactions don't occur quickly and are much less severe than allergies. Because the immune mediators are in the blood, they can lead to symptoms all over the body and can often appear to have nothing to do with the food you ate, which can make it really difficult to identify the cause. Food intolerances don't involve the immune system at all. They are caused by an inability to digest a food, like I mentioned earlier with lactose intolerance. Food intolerances usually cause some sort of digestive distress like gas or bloating that goes away after several hours. And the symptoms of these are typically more obvious than food sensitivity symptoms because they usually um, are digestive and occur relatively quickly after eating the food. One common disease that doesn't really fit nicely into any of these categories is celiac disease. So it has some characteristics of a true food allergy because it does involve the immune system. So when someone with celiac disease eats gluten, their body mounts an immune response that creates symptoms all over the body. But unlike other food allergies, most people with celiac disease are not at risk for anaphylaxis. And when I say most, I mean 99% because I have heard of a few cases of anaphylaxis related to gluten, but it's pretty rare. However, people with celiac disease, like those who have food allergies, can't eat gluten because their body will have an immune response every single time they expose it to gluten. So it kind of exists between food intolerance and food allergy. Testing for true IgE allergies is usually done at an allergist's office using the skin scratch test or done by a blood test. The skin test is done by applying a food extract or the food itself to the skin in order to create a reaction. 
You can also test for food allergies using an elimination diet and a controlled food challenge test. The keyword there being controlled because this should absolutely be done under the supervision of a healthcare provider because if you really are allergic to the food, to a food and you eat it, it can have some very serious consequences such as anaphylaxis. So you don't want to just be doing this willy-nilly by yourself at home. This is done a lot with kids and food allergies because a lot of the time they tend to outgrow them. So they use a very controlled food reintroduction schedule after months or years to challenge a food and learn if the allergy still exists. Again, do not do this unless you're doing it under the explicit supervision of your healthcare provider. Testing for food sensitivities can be done in two ways. And I want to talk about, when I talk about food sensitivities, I'm also talking about food intolerances because there isn't really a good way to distinguish between the two of them. So when I say food sensitivities, I'm also talking about intolerances. So testing for food sensitivities is done in two ways. The first of which is the standard of care for food sensitivity testing, and that's an elimination diet with a reintroduction protocol. And the second way is a blood test that tests for antibodies to a variety of foods. And what foods they test kind of depends on the test that you get. Before I go any further, I also want to say that you do need to rule out any food allergies before you do this, because if you get an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts, you don't want to eat peanuts. But no one who knows what they're doing is ever going to suggest that you eat a food that you know you have an allergy to. So I'm not actually a fan of food sensitivity testing for a number of reasons. The first is that it's expensive and your insurance doesn't cover it. They can run anywhere from $200 to $800. But it also doesn't really measure the delayed reactions which occur in many food sensitivity reactions and even in allergic reactions. I am going to link in the show notes to a position statement from the Allergy Society of South Africa that talks a little bit more about this if you're interested in checking that out. But the basics are that they looked at the ALCAT test and um, an IgG test and determined that in kids with asthma, eczema, and irritable bowel, the predictive value of the ALCAT test was extremely poor and of no benefit in identifying the trigger of symptoms and there was no improvement in any of the patients who followed the diet recommended based on the test results. Also, there are no peer-reviewed publications or any what's called reasonable studies to su support the diagnostic value for any of the non-allergy-related conditions for which the ALCAT test claims to be of value. There's also not a single non-allergy-related clinical society in the entire world that supports the use of the ALCAT for any of the conditions that the ALCAT tests themselves claim that the test has diagnostic value for. And this lack of evidence is similar for the IgG testing that they looked at. I'm not going to bore you with the other details. You can read the paper yourself if you're interested. But my point here is that a lot of people place a lot of value on these tests and there isn't a lot to back up the validity of the results. Now, I'm not saying that they are completely useless, but I definitely think that they're overused and I totally understand why. I mean, if you could take a simple blood test that told you what foods you shouldn't be eating or you had to spend months eating a restricted diet and then systematically reintroducing foods, which one would you choose? 
It's definitely the easier choice, so I get why people are flocking to that option. But the reality is that the hard option, an elimination provocation diet, is still the gold standard for diagnosis of food sensitivities. And yes, it definitely has drawbacks too. A typical elimination diet is followed for at least 30 days, and there are so many different variations of these, but at the very least, you would be eliminating processed foods such as gluten, dairy, grains, soy, certain oils, and most food additives or preservatives. If you have an autoimmune disease or you suspect that you do, there's a whole other list of foods that you'd want to eliminate, including nightshades, coffee, eggs, and a few others. Then, once you've seen a certain level of healing, you would systematically reintroduce certain food groups to see if you have a reaction. Some of the criticisms of this form of testing for food sensitivities is that it's highly subjective and it's possible to both miss symptoms or interpret, misinterpret a symptom that isn't really there. I have also heard people in the health world talk about how these diets eliminate nutrient-dense foods that may not need to be eliminated if you aren't actually sensitive to them, as well as the opposite being true where you're only eliminating the common trigger foods and you may actually be sensitive to something that you didn't eliminate, which can cause your symptoms to continue. While I don't deny that any of this is true, in my opinion, these are not good reasons to rely on a relatively inaccurate test instead. I also think that because of some of the troubleshooting that may be involved in an elimination diet, it's important to work with a practitioner because if you're following one of these diets and you aren't seeing the results, then there definitely may be some benefit to doing food sensitivity testing or looking at other root causes of your symptoms. I also won't deny that an elimination diet is hard to follow, but the benefit that you get from following it to the best of your ability is twofold. So not only do you come out of it with a diet that is 100% personalized to you, but you also heal your body and potentially reverse autoimmunity to a certain point. There's no blood test out there that can heal your body for you. Unfortunately, that's something that you just have to put effort into. As far as determining what constitutes a reaction, that can be a challenge for a lot of people, which is why I think that keeping a food and symptom journal is so valuable. And I know that if you're feeling really terrible and you're doing your elimination diet and you get to the point where you're reintroducing a food that you really want to eat, it can be really, really easy to overanalyze everything that is happening to your body that may or may not constitute a reaction to that food. And I completely sympathize with that. But I also think that there is a fine line to walk between being obsessive about it and being kind of a casual observer of what's going on in your body. And unfortunately, that can be a difficult skill to learn, and it's certainly not something that can be taught. I'm going to use myself as an example here on a few points, but I first want to say that I have been very lucky to only have suffered from debilitating symptoms, the main one, which was fatigue, for a relatively short time. And I want to acknowledge that there are people who truly don't feel like they have time to mess around with tweaking their diets to figure out what makes them feel better and what makes them feel worse. And that would be a case where I might say that starting with some food sensitivity testing would be a good thing because while it isn't accurate, it can provide a starting place that might get you some quick wins in the symptom department. That being said, I strongly encourage everyone, and yes, even the people who feel awful and need to hurry up and feel better, to put the time and the effort into figuring this out without testing. Because I think that if you take a less obsessive and more casual approach to this, 
you can actually learn more and are better in tune with what actually constitutes a symptom and what doesn't. So for me personally, I went paleo in 2009 with the intention of just being healthier. I wasn't aware of any symptoms that I wanted to improve or anything like that. So when I did that, and I think I've talked about this before, I discovered that certain foods did actually make me feel bad when I ate them. So things like soy, gluten, and some grains. Then the longer that I was paleo, I discovered that there was actually an amount of these foods that I could eat with no obvious consequences. But once I went over the threshold, I had symptoms like fatigue, gastrointestinal distress, or breakouts. Or when I decided to test a food, and I was honestly never super systematic about this, I'd eat something like dairy a couple of times over the course of a few days and just see how I felt. And if I didn't like the way I felt or I suddenly got a bunch of zits, I attributed it to the dairy. Now, this all sounds really laid back and casual, which it kind of is, but that's the thing. By completing this process over and over again, I have a pretty good idea of exactly how a food is going to affect me and what I can and can't eat. Now, I'm pretty lucky in that I don't have a lot of food sensitivities, but I'm not sure I would have changed much about this process even if I did, other than not eating the things that make me feel bad. I'm worried that I'm making this sound super oversimplified, which is not at all my intention, and I know that this still sounds impossible for some of you, but my point here is that if you don't want to be obsessive about it, then don't. You can still get the information that you need without being obsessed about how you feel or if something is a symptom. With the blood test for food sensitivities, if you do end up going that route and something shows up on your test that you hardly ever eat, that likely means that you are very sensitive to it and you should probably avoid it. The other thing that can be helpful with these tests is that if you have a bunch of foods that show up, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are and always will be sensitive to those foods, but what it does show is that you probably have a fairly serious case of leaky gut happening. So just because you have 50 foods show up on your test, which is a lot, that doesn't mean that you're always going to be sensitive to those. It means that your immune system is on overdrive and you've got a case of leaky gut. One of the other problems with these tests is that your blood cells have a life cycle of about 100 days. So what shows up on your test today could be different in three or four months. But since these tests are expensive, it's not likely that you're going to want to retest very frequently to see how things are changing or use it as a gauge for your gut healing. So to sum all that up, my basic recommendation is that you should do an elimination diet to determine your food sensitivities and then consider using a food sensitivity test as a last resort if you're having lingering symptoms or you know that you're sen sensitive to something, but you can't seem to figure out what it is with your elimination diet. So how do you get rid of food sensitivities? Well, first of all, if you have a true food allergy, you'll probably never get rid of that. So that's not at all what we're talking about here. But with food sensitivities, so any food that causes you to have any symptom or something that showed up on your food sensitivity testing, if that's what you did, uh, the first thing you need to do is heal your gut. And depending on how severe your leaky gut is, it can take three to six months or even a year or more to do that. And I know that no one wants to hear that it's going to be a year before they can eat chocolate again. But for some people, that's just how it is and it stinks, but it's the reality. And leaky gut can be complicated by things like IBD or celiac disease, which can make this worse and take longer for you to heal. 
The biggest thing you can do to heal your gut is to avoid inflammatory foods, which includes all of the foods that you are sensitive to, but more generally, if you don't know what those are yet, all of the things that you would eliminate during your elimination diet are common inflammatory foods. So things like soy, gluten, uh, dairy, those are really common. You also need to decrease your stress or work on stress management in areas where you can't completely eliminate stress because we all have some level of stress in our lives, but how we respond to it makes a huge difference. Be sure that you aren't using toxic personal care or cleaning products, and I have several recommendations for what to use instead if you check out the show notes for episodes, I think it's 5, 9, and 10. Make sure you are getting plenty of sleep, so 7 to 9 hours a night. And make sure that what you are eating is a nutrient-dense and healing diet. After you have done some healing, you can test the foods you are sensitive to. If you're following an elimination diet, this will be built into the reintroduction protocol. But if you just had food sensitivity testing done, you'll want to test those foods in a systematic way and only one at a time over the course of several days to gauge any reaction you might have. And again, the amount of time you need to not eat these foods varies, but at a very minimum, I would say 30 days. But for a lot of people, it's more like three or six months. And if you do reintroduce a food and you don't appear to have a reaction to it, I would still use caution and eat that food only in moderation because this can unfortunately be a moving target. So as I said earlier, I know what my tolerance is to certain foods, Like, I know that putting heavy cream or half and half in my coffee for a couple of days is fine, but if I do it for several weeks, I'm going to have some skin issues and start to feel kind of lousy. The same actually goes for gluten. I can eat a little bit of gluten occasionally with very few ill effects, but this is the result of me not eating it and then eating a lot of it and then not eating it and then eating a little bit and just kind of seeing how that all played out. And this is why I love the elimination diet approach because I think it just teaches you so much about your body and how you react to food. And if you've never done something like this before, you're thinking that this all sounds completely crazy, I would highly encourage you to try something like a Whole30 just to see what happens because it's really hard to quantify some of this to someone who's never done it before. Even if you aren't dealing with any serious symptoms, it's a good exercise to try as far as learning how to listen to your body because that's a skill that you really just need to practice and not something that can really be taught to you. When you do your reintroduction protocol and you find that you think you reacted to something, I highly suggest testing the individual food by itself at some point down the road. So I think the the Whole30 reintroduction does more groups of foods rather than individual foods. So if you have some sort of reaction on the day that you introduce dairy, but you ate three different kinds of dairy, I would suggest going back to Whole30, eating for at least three days, and then testing specific dairy items one at a time. So first on one day, try butter and eat a little bit of it at every meal, so three times a day, and see what happens. This can also help you determine your tolerance threshold as well. So maybe you don't react until the third serving. You may have more of a tolerance, but you're still sensitive. And I actually talk a little bit about which foods in certain categories are better tolerated in my book, The 30-Day Energy Reset, and give you a reintroduction protocol based on what is best tolerated by most people. So you might be able to eat, say, butter and goat cheese, but not drink milk, but you've unfortunately got to test those foods individually. Also, I want to touch on one last thing about an elimination diet that came up in a conversation with a client. 
One of the criticisms I've heard for doing an elimination diet and then reintroducing potentially problematic foods, especially in people with autoimmune disease, is that people are often afraid that reintroducing a food they are sensitive to will provoke a flare-up or cause the healing they've done to be undone. I want to address these two things separately. So if you are reintroducing one food or one food group at a time and following a protocol, it is very unlikely that you will undo any of the healing that you've done. The problem comes when you try and rush the process and do too much too fast. Then you can cause your leaky gut to come back and you aren't exactly back where you started, but you end up having more work to do. This can be avoided by being very systematic about the way you reintroduce things and not going overboard and eating all the things over the course of a few days. Patience is really key here. As far as autoimmune flare-ups during reintroduction go, they can happen. But because of the controlled way that you are reintroducing foods a little at a time, most people don't generally get a full-blown flare-up. They tend to have symptoms that under other circumstances would develop into a flare, but they don't typically happen because you're only introducing a small amount of a specific food at any given time, and then you go back to eating the things that you know are safe before reintroducing more foods. All right, that's all I've got for you this week. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode. And if you did enjoy it, I would love it if you would head over to iTunes and leave a rating or a review so that other people can find this show or even better, share this episode with someone who you think might find this information useful. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. 